0: The ongoing coronavirus pandemic has had a significant impact on residents in the Bay Area. It is critical to capture this moment in our history. The Oakland History Center of the Oakland Public Library wants to capture the stories of our residents and workers to help inform the generations to come. Submit your stories to the COVID-19 East Bay Community Archive at oaklandlibrary.org dash 19 archive. Hello there, Oakland, and welcome back to another episode of Check Your Shell, the Oakland Public Library podcast. I'm Dorothy Lazard, and I manage the Oakland History Center of the Oakland Main Library. Instead of hosting our annual Fall History Series in person, we're bringing you the Fall History mini-series podcast. For the past year or so, I've been thinking a lot about the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame, a local nonprofit that for more than 20 years celebrated and supported black participation in the film industry. They hosted award ceremonies, screenwriting workshops, film competitions, and directors' symposia. Today's filmmakers could certainly use that kind of support and encouragement. So in this episode, I reached out to local filmmaker Cheryl Fabio, the director of the fabulous documentary, Evolutionary Blues, about the West Oakland blues scene. She has not only a professional, but a personal connection to Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. Cheryl, welcome to Check Your Shelf. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You're the executive director of the Sarah Webster Fabio Center, which is a local nonprofit. Can you talk to us about that? So it's actually Sarah Webster
1: Fabio Center for Social Justice. In it,
0: we work in the
1: arts, we work in community building, and we do social justice projects. And what I love about this organization is that we can be whoever we want to be. We can be operating on a level of zero income, and still have an impact on our community. Originally, we were safespaces.org, and the board made the decision to rename the organization uh, Honoring My Mother, which is a little hard for me because I went around like talking about my mother. But on the other hand, I love it because uh, we need to honor the people in our lives. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and I love the fact that, you know, half the work I do is like in honor of the work that my mother did no matter what anybody else thinks about it right my mother was sarah webster fabio she we she's from uh the bay area after having five children and teaching and being a social worker in oakland she decided hell i might if i'm gonna work this hard let me go do my passion so she went to san francisco state got her creative writing degree and really launched herself as a poet. So she had a really interesting trajectory. It was a short trajectory. She got mm-hmm. to 52, but you know, it was, uh, I, I think she was pleased with herself. She, she did about everything you could do in that space of time.
0: I wanna say that your mother, as I recall, was one of the founding members of Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame.
1: Well, I don't think she was, but I'll tell you what, what you might be remembering is almost during the same time, my mother and E.J. Montgomery pulled together Black artists and did a major event. I think uh, Sergeant Johnson was showing at the museum. You know, Do you know him? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, so yeah.
1: They did a big thing about uh, Sergeant Johnson's um, sculptures being at the Oakland Museum. And sonny buxton is who it was his idea and mary uh, mary smith and belva davis you know he was trying to get people to join the the bandwagon of this idea of bringing all this stuff to oakland but through the oakland museum they eventually he passed it on to belvin them they were interested they talked about it for years and they might have even launched a, a pilot of it in the early 70s, or the late 60s. And um, they did the work of actually formalizing it and presenting it. And for a number of years, it it operated through the Oakland uh, Museum, through the cultural affairs, the Black Cultural Affairs group. There was a major wrestling of this white institution that just basically ignored the fact that Black people lived in Oakland and were a a sizable portion of the uh, population here, and so there was this this cultural affairs division had to do a real wrestling to say, oh no, you, you know, we will also use these public spaces and mm-hmm. and we'll lift up our culture as well. And that went on for a number of years. They finally wrestled it,
0: but there was simultaneously a visual arts movement happening. Yes, I remember Oakland having a very vibrant. Black arts movement. I remember the rainbow sign on Old Grove Street in Berkeley. And certainly when the Oakland Museum hosted that first uh, Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame event, they had like a film series, I remember, showing films that, you know, we never saw on late night TV or any TV uh, that Black people made throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. That showed us in a completely different light than uh, the fair that was being offered on TV regularly. And it was phenomenal because for many of us, I was a teenager at the time when they started, for many of us, we had never been in the Oakland Museum. Yep. It was very much a white institution that was, you know, just somewhere over there by the lake. And we were kind of astounded that not only would they have a film series uh, featuring black artists, but the quality of film was so good.
1: Part of the thing about black filmmakers that was so amazing is they had the reach. And I don't know who had the connections, but they had the reach from the very beginning to bring people from Hollywood who were simply people we had seen on Screen. television, black and white TV sometimes. But, uh who who were excited to come and join in this community event you know that's m- one of my biggest memories is that when we would do stuff for young filmmakers gordon parks would be there i mean the people who would come and just mingle with young local filmmakers was amazing and it was
0: it was extremely influential uh, not only for you know, us kids who wanted to just see, you know, Sidney Poitier as beautiful in person as he is on the screen, but just to hear them talk about their journeys, their struggles, their careers, uh, the challenges that they faced, and then in those very early years, how they really made sure to bring in many of the older people who you know were making movies in the 20s and 30s the people like butterfly mcqueen like madam saltywan you know people we didn't hadn't even heard of to honor them and say you know your contribution though we're looking at it through our modern prism as maybe insulting or something we honor you for having gone through that and and the people were so appreciative that they were remembered that they were awarded because so many of them at the award ceremony would say, thank you for remembering me. Well, one
1: of the main people was Clarence. Um, Clarence, Clarence Muse. Clarence Muse, Clarence Muse came up all the time and he, oh. he loved being with young filmmakers. So remember that my part of Black Filmmakers was really with the young filmmakers. I mean, I was staff and so I was support, but the thing that I really did was work with filmmakers. The the list of of folks who would participate was just amazing.
0: I became a librarian because of black filmmakers. I walked into their office at 19 years old. I was going to Laney College. And I walked into their office and I offered to volunteer. And one of their volunteers, Judy Vaughn, who wrote their press releases, taught me how to write press releases I worked on her with correspondences, both to the guest and to, you know, foundations that they reached out to for funding. They had this huge, they had accumulated this huge cache of photographs and film negatives that they want organized. And and Judy approached me and said, can you help organize this? And somehow we got talking about you know, how things should be organized and what should be kept and so forth. I don't know if she put the idea in my head, but somehow the idea floated into uh, my head about library school. And I applied to library school. She, she and Mar- uh, Mary Perry Smith wrote letters of recommendation for me. And I went to UC Berkeley's library school. And I do want to say to our listeners that the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame Incorporated Archive ended up not in Oakland, but in Indiana at Indiana University. Mary Perry Smith was from Indiana, and uh, I helped her 2007-2008 try to get the archives and uh, organizational records together. I had no idea that they'd end up uh, across the country, but that's where they are.
1: Well, the one thing, thing, Dorothy, before you... I want to first say that when that organization finally closed down, It had been around for 40 years. They had done their due diligence. But also, Mary Steph went to Indiana because there's a Black Film Center archives there that has a repository of Black film, independent particularly, but all kinds of Black film all over the country. So it was a hard choice. We couldn't find a place in Oakland that was going to house it, and they were eager.
0: How did you get into filmmaking?
1: Oh. That's a good one. Um, I went to Fisk University in 1967, I started and I say that because there was so much going on It had a history of being sort of a, a snobbish school Got caught up in this movement stuff as well. And so everything was about uh, focusing students on on black stuff, everything. And they brought in uh, Bobby Sinstack from the Chicago Defender and Carlton Moss, who was a filmmaker in Los Angeles. And they started a communications program. I was really just passionate about photography. And at the end of my schooling, this sent me to Nigeria for a study trip. And they gave me all the film I could carry. And they processed the stuff when I came back. So I had this amazing portfolio. Really, it was a beautiful portfolio of uh, photographs I took in Africa. So I took this portfolio and I got into the documentary program that was at Stanford in those years. And that launched me. But I don't know if they really wanted my kind of Black person in there. So I struggled for the time I was there. I couldn't get funding to make my thesis. And most kids would come out with a written thesis, but I was kind of determined to do a film thesis. What was your thesis on? I did a film about my mother who was a writer. I pieced this film together working like six dollar an hour jobs where I'd also have to pay for the film and the processing and all that stuff. It took me about five years to get through this one-year program, which was fine. I came out with this 30 minute film about my mother that actually has shown recently. And like, who would have thought that? My film was Rainbow Black Poet, Sarah Webster Fabio. But that was also how I got connected to black filmmakers. When I finished all of that, you know, the post would have the little stands and you could get a free post. And I happened to pass by one of those stands, see, a post, and I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I saw that they were having a film competition. My God, it must have been about 76, because that's when I finished my my film.
0: Can you talk to me about the journey you had to uh, go through to get Evolutionary Blues made? The thing that's so
1: special to me about Evolutionary Blues is after I got the bit, well, I had worked at K Top for three and a half years, and had hired many of the people that are there now. So I knew them all intimately, which is just an amazing way to make a film. You know, it's like, you know how to communicate with each other. It was a wonderful crew. They were willing to like jump in with me and let me paddle my way around, support me where we could, and then actually be part of it. So one of the amazing things after we had done 40 interviews, my process is to... Get the interviews transcribed. So now, now I have huge binders of these transcripts. Okay, now what are you going to do? So one of the ways that we started breaking that down into a film is I gave three or four people binders and said, okay, pull out your favorite parts. And we took a room at K Top and just posted things on the wall you could walk around and you could scratch something off. You could add something to it and all of that. And then I built it. I was able to go in and, and build it. Well, that was six hours worth of stuff, but that was the beginning of being able to edit it down into a real story. And I knew that I wanted to go in and braid together the politics of Oakland, the music story, which was like 30 of those interviews and, um, and sort of, the uh, history of the music. And so we had those three ideas. And as we started, and then we ended up with Isabel Wilkerson being willing to be on camera, an amazing group of musicians, did interviews, and then some really good historians. All of this, then we had a lot of material and were able to whittle and whittle and whittle and whittle. And then after we got the storyline, that film continued to get these amazing gifts. My dear friend, Kareeth Reed, who I say that she's actually a friend of my mother's, had E.F. Joseph's Negatives, the photographer from, that used to kind of record culture in West Oakland. Yes. 50, have, had rescued 50,000 of his negatives. And you know, a funny story is um, a guy called and said, hey, I hear you're making this film. You really need to call Ruth Beckford and let her know what you're doing and see if you can use these photographs. So I'm I used, a dancer. Right, wait, and I used to take dance from Ruth Beckford, but I'm not a good dancer. Everyone in my class, was like all of these, Dimension Dance, all of these amazing dancers. And then there was me. So (laughs) Ruth uh, Ruth kind of had a uh, funny view of me, and I knew she would. So she said no.
0: (laughs) Ouch. Wait,
1: she said no, but I knew she would because I was not a dancer. And then the same guy called me and said, yeah, but they're having a book signing at Marcus Bookstore. So go and present yourself and ask again. When I went to Marcus Bookstore, I bought a book and Kareeth Reed was going to sign it for me. She said, okay, what's your name? And I said, well, Cheryl Fabio. And she looked up and she said, I loved your mother. She said, wait a minute. She went on and on and they were like buddies. They were buddies. Oh, I, wow. Wait, I said, well, I really want
0: to use these photographs. She said, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Was sitting right there, and she rolled her eyes.
0: It's kind of like uh, when your dad says no, you can't do something, and you go to your mom. It's like, mom, can I do this? Yes.
1: I didn't know Karee then, so I did, and I didn't know that she had a history with my mother. So, for me, those photographs from the forties, along with there's a series of photographs we got of blues musicians, that puts the heart in that film because. It's not just people talking about stuff. This, we're seeing the people that we're talking about. Yes, it's gorgeous. They're, they're, they're breathtaking folks. And you say, well, what was all of the fuss about? You know, um, the, the for me, and you know, I would sit in my home at two o'clock in the morning, looking at those people, in the photographs, just having this relationship with them, knowing that. They were 60
0: years dead. Does our current social moment demand anything of its filmmakers and other artists? What are your thoughts on that? You've
1: got these tools on your desk that you can get almost, say, four fifths of the film completed. You've got things like the Internet to post stuff to in the 60s and the 70s, you had to come overcome all of that, face the expense, have the uh, fortitude to go through that process, and then you're still left with the product that you've got to distribute. This is a very different time, but on the other hand, in these times, I think, you almost have the challenge of, there's a need for content. There's an industry that will still operate on a formula. And so I think what I don't see as much of is this kind of independent film where people are using the technology to make a a culturally political statement, right? There's a lot of entertainment and a lot of entertainment that's going to be accepted by the existing distribution system so you have a different kind of product for instance every time i make a film i feel like it's the only film i'll ever make and so i've got to like throw like my heart and my soul and everything at it i don't think that young
0: people have young filmmakers have that
1: problem as much as i did because and
0: i think yeah i think because the technology is uh, so at their fingertips right And it's so native to them. uh, uh, Unlike, you know, 40 40 or more years ago, where can you get a camera? Can you get staff to help you? Uh, How do you get your film processed? That kind of thing. And of course, uh, even, you know, skilled filmmakers had to fight with distribution. That was always a conversation in the film symposia that black filmmakers had. And, and uh, do you remember there were films that were taken out of distribution because they were uh, felt to be too controversial? I'm thinking of the Spook Who Sat by the Door. That film was basically kind of banned for years before it resurfaced.
1: Well, you yeah, know, and then you have things, stories like uh, Gordon Parks making uh, Solomon's Journey, and mm-hmm. the industry that brought him in to do it demanded that he take out you know demanded that this film had a certain tone it broke his heart that he couldn't tell the story the way that he wanted to tell the story and yet he was delighted that he was able to direct this film and get it completed so there was just it's just such a different industry today than it was before
0: well hollywood is so set up still it's so kind of predicated on making money as opposed to quality story that you know, it's very formulaic, you know, it's like, we need a spy movie because last summer there was a really popular spy movie that made a trillion dollars or a superhero movie that made a trillion dollars. So let's all make this. And, you know, sometimes I feel like we're both shut out of that system because it's like, well, have you really done work like this? And then sometimes I feel like black filmmakers are trying to cater to that system and not maybe some more important story. And then also come to think about what is what's what is important. You know, a comedy may be as revelatory to a person as a, a heavy duty drama or a documentary. Have you seen Uncorked on Netflix? No. Let me Uncorked? See. No. I'd recommend that. It was a very oh, uh, sweet family, uh, Black family film set in Memphis. This family that owns a barbecue joint in Memphis. It's a, f- a feature film. Huh. You know, filmmaker I would never heard of, but just uh, extremely sweet. It has Courtney B. Vance and uh, Nisi Nash as the parents. All of the streaming systems that I have access to, Amazon, Netflix, Canopy, through the library. I'm finding that they've all responded to the Black Lives Matter movement by having now a curated roster of films that they're offering. Um, so they're trying to be responsive in their own ways. You know, I'm gonna, let me, let me,
1: let me, let me do my take on that. So yeah. I, I read, you know, I get all these emails from companies that make these statements about Black Lives Matter and, you know, it drives me up a wall. Let me just clear. Yeah, I go up the wall because I say, uh, today isn't different from yesterday or the day before that. And yeah, it's a nice statement. You know, it takes me a half an hour if I'm going to read it. But the thing is, I don't care about your statement. I care about your action. So what do you look like in three years? What do you look like in the future? after you've written this lofty statement in the moment um and yeah does this moment demand stuff of filmmakers absolutely i think that you know black folks just um i mean you can do art for art's sake i don't know i you know i come from the school of thought where we really do have a responsibility to our community so you know we every now and again we need a break and so bring in some mindless comedy i mean i I'm consciously, I watched a Christmas movie the other day, because
0: Delroy Lindo was in it, and I thought, oh, come on, Christmas and all, but my brain needed a break. Yeah, you needed a break. You can't always watch things like, you know, the 13th, some really heavy duty. Yeah. You know, I can
1: pretty much 99% of the time, but that other 1% of the time, like everyone else, I need some mindless entertainment as well. Have now,
0: you was- noticed that Netflix has uh, Africa cinema? I
1: binge on that all the time and you know I've, I've been uh me too I, I've been, yeah I go to fest I used to go to fest Paco. I mean I, when I when I do get to go to Africa I'm always paying attention to the cinema so yeah that's interesting and but if you see those films I suspect like here that's the the uh Bollywood kind of uh the Nollywood, I'm Nollywood sorry. for Nigeria, yeah. Nigeria, But there's also an independent cinema going on there. And so there's hmm. just so much stuff that we can learn. But, you know, we have to be committed and then there has to be the money to do it because it's very expensive. You can finish a film and put it on uh, YouTube, but you can't finish a film at home on your desktop and put it in a theater right? Or put it on television. We need to have environments that help us get into an understanding of that behind the scenes aspect. Because if you can do four-fifths of it with a little
0: help, you can get through that last
1: fifth of it as well.
0: So what would you say is... um the organization's legacy today how could people in Oakland uh, young aspiring filmmakers or older aspiring filmmakers uh benefit from what black filmmakers has done well, anything
1: yeah they I mean they've normalized they that's the reason that there's so many kids making films for me you know Black Orpheus was actually the first film I think I saw where I saw people who look like me. And then Sidney Portier was one of the first, you know, actually, because on television, you're not watching the old films, you're watching what's in front of you. So Sidney Portier was another black-skinned person that I saw. And I thought, oh, well, this is possible. It's things like that that build uh, the awareness and the confidence in somebody. So I completely attribute The scene that we've got now on black filmmakers, not solely because there were a number of those all over the country. But on places like black filmmakers who said to this black community that they had in front of them. You can do this. In fact, you must do this. We have to do this to give ourselves, feed ourselves our own stories and change the trajectory because if you leave that story to be told by somebody else, you're in trouble right yes absolutely but i think we need to do more of those things again i think that our storytellers it's being in communion and community that you you develop this sense of what your responsibility is i'm not talking about how you do it or what story you tell but kind of you develop this uh sense of how much impact you can have on your community whatever your community is I think filmmakers have a responsibility uh, you you know someone can say well I don't have to just because you think it doesn't mean i got to do it and that's true but we do have to make a response we do have a responsibility because even though there's a lot more than there was there's not enough and our children need so much our our own psyches need so much and so you should be putting programming out there that whether it's, to me, whether it's light entertainment, comedy, if it's whatever it
0: is, take us someplace. Please take us someplace. Cheryl Fabio, thank you so much for joining us today on Check Your Shelf. Good luck in the filmmaking world, and we'll look forward to your next film. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: To learn more about Cheryl Fabio and the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame, have a look at our show notes for this episode.
0: Even though the libraries remain closed you can reach the Oakland History Center staff by emailing us at eanswers at oaklandlibrary.org or by calling 510-238-3134. Check Your Shelf is made possible through a mini-grant from the Friends of the Oakland Public Library. Through grants and special programs, the Friends support the critical work OPL performs in our community. To learn more about the Friends, visit fopl.org impact.